Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Now, as many of you know, I'm an avid plant grower. I'm really enjoying some of the plants in my collection right now, but one in particular has got me very excited. It might just be the pride and joy of my collection. My Gastrochylus bolinus is blooming right now. It's native throughout parts of tropical Asia, and it has not large showy flowers. They're kind of medium showy flowers, but they're just gorgeous. The uh, sepals and petals are yellow base with kind of a purplish maroon verging on brown spotting all over them. And the labellum itself has kind of formed into a half cup with a long fuzzy lip. It's bright white with purplish pink spotting and some yellow and those kind of pseudo pollen pseudo anthers on the lip that I think might entice bees to thinking they're actually going to get a meal when they visit the flower. Uh, And it's slightly aromatic. It's floral, but it's verging on kind of gross in my opinion. I like it, but uh, it is the pride and joy of my collection just because it's so unassuming 90% of the year and then it blooms and it's just fantastic. It's an epiphyte. It's monopodial in form, so it looks a lot like the uh, growth form of a phalaenopsis. Google it, Gastrochylus bolinus. It's a really easy orchid to grow. I got it from a clone from a friend, had it for a few years, and this is only the second time it's bloomed for me, so I'm super excited. Does anyone else think about having bloom parties when your plants are blooming that are really cool? You want to show them to your friends? Some of my friends would get it, at least. Most would be amused by it. I have good friends. That's a cool idea, bloom parties. I think if I ever owned a giant corpse flower of some sort, like an amorphophallus, I'd force everyone to come over and trick them into thinking it was going to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> All right, what do I have for you today? Got some longtime friends on the podcast. They've returned. You've heard them before. Dave Janis, he's horticultural guru of mine. Pretty much most of my success in growing houseplants I owe to him. He's joining us today. Uh, You'll remember him from episode 15, Life in a Costa Rica Botanical Garden, episode 33, and episode 34 about the time we went to Costa Rica, hung out with Dave, did some planting, did some plant rescuing. It was a lot of fun. And Estefania Fernandez. Now you will remember Estefania from episode 95. She's a now a PhD student, and she works on epiphyte restoration ecology. Fantastic person, brilliant scientist, and I'm very excited about her work. But today is a very casual conversation. Both of them are now living here in the States, and so we went down and paid them a visit to hang out. And we sat down in the afternoon over some food and had this conversation. Now, Estefania is from Bolivia, and they recently went down to go visit her family and kind of enjoy the area around La Paz. Now, as you hear, La Paz is a high elevation area in Bolivia. It's not the lowland Amazon, but it's a fascinating place. Sounds like it's got an incredible flora, and what better way to talk about this flora than to sit down with two botany nuts and just have a chit-chat about it. So that's what you're about to hear. Before we get to that, however, we've got a few orders of business to take care of first. YouTube.com slash plants. As many of you may know, as many more of you probably don't know, we are a video series now. Indefensive Plants has taken up videography. We're doing some shorter and some longer documentary style videos about plants, about some adventuring. We have a full length episode. Well, I wouldn't say full length. We have a 20 minute episode about botanizing in the southern Appalachian Mountains. Our most recent video is a wonderful winter adventure. It's beautiful, and we feature a lot of great music in the process. So head on over to youtube.com slash plants and go check that out. And hit that subscribe button because, thanks to the support of many of our listeners, 
We've got some incredible projects coming up in the next couple of months. So best way to stay on top of those exciting secret projects is to hit that subscribe button so you'll know immediately once they drop. Speaking of supporting this podcast, the best way to do that is to head on over to patreon.com slash indefensiveplants and see what we have going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get a little bit more in return, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Clifton, Homestead Brooklyn, Daniela, Brody, Kevin, Sophia, Plant by Design, Mark, Katharina, Sammy and Sven, Renz, Bendix, Sebastian, Arne, Holly, Shane, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, Troy, Margie, and Laura. That list is growing. We have so many other patrons at the 5 and $1 level, so thank you to everyone who has given money this far. It means the world to me that you're enjoying this podcast enough to support it financially. If multiple donations each month are not your thing, you can give a one-time lump sum of any amount over at indefensiveplants.com. Just scroll down on the right-hand side of the page and click that donate button. Now, if money isn't your thing at all, which I completely empathize with, at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. Reviews not only help me make a better podcast for you, but they help In Defense of Plants reach a wider audience. And by providing your two cents, you're helping In Defense of Plants' mission to help cure plant blindness around the globe one episode at a time. So give us a review, let us know what you're thinking. Alright, that's enough out of me. Let's head on over to my chat with Dave and Estefania. I hope you enjoy toward the, the basilica yeah the, they were like oh and this is the cantuta like yeah and it was green yellow and red <laughs> <laughs> okay all right uh cantua box of Bolivia. national flowers of bolivia okay oh, look you at that. won you won oh, oh. <laughs> oh my what <laughs> what is the other one then? <laughs> <laughs> it's the patuhu but the, that's the one that they the put in all lens. like the in in like the llamas and everything. That's what we use for decorating. Everybody you in the decorate your llamas. They put earrings in the llamas with contour. What? Oh my god, I love that idea! Wow. And like oh, little like awesome. yeah. little like uh, like necklaces with contours. I mean, the one that isn't I'm that dangerous? About. If it's a Brugmansia? Get some no, it's a nicotinoids on you. Oh well, uh, Brugmansia is used dangerously in Bolivia. Yeah. But the big one. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll get to that. All right. <laughs> we got to remember to bring that up. We're trying to fight. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, yeah. uh, and then in the Highlands, oh. like this was up at Tiwanaku. This is that is that little Altiplano. APAC? No. no that's, that's a, a bromeliad. No. <laughs> Tiny little bromeliads that are like condensated in this thing that looks like grass. Oh, so zooming in, you can kind of see it. Bromelifolia, no? Uh, yeah. Um, Bromatiella. It was like what we saw at the desert oh, house the other day. It was like a mound yeah, of like... Yeah, you, they'll grow in a pot. Not puya, but a stiff. Yeah, yeah, super, super tough. Wow. And then, I mean, it's in this landscape, like, there's nothing, and then boom. <laughs> Just sitting there, like a little yeah. lupus spermum, man. All right. 
Stephania mm-hmm. and Dave, mm-hmm. both of you, have been guests on the podcast before. It is so nice to be doing this in person with you guys. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's, it's a little different. Yeah. To be doing it Welcome again. back. Thank you. Welcome back. Thank you. We've had a great day of looking about, looking at and talking about plants. Um, we're going to do some more, <laughs> but now the listeners get to join us. So uh, you can listen to their episodes. Obviously, I will have already talked about them in the intro for this episode, but these are some of my favorite plant people in the world. And today we're here to talk about your homeland mm-hmm. and a visit you guys just recently took to... Bolivia. Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Where, where exactly are you from? Uh, from La Paz. La Paz. So the governmental capital of Bolivia. Okay, so western, northwestern Bolivia-ish? Ish. Okay, and high elevation? Uh, 3,600 meters. Wow, okay. Now, Bolivia I always think of as tropical. I think mm-hmm. of lowland Amazonia, but that's a not insignificant amount of elevation to have to deal with. So instead of talking about the obvious Amazonian portion that probably gets way more attention, today we're going to talk about some of the weird stuff that grows in the mountains mm-hmm. of Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Altiplano. And highlands. Altiplano. Altiplano, the means. high plane. High plane. Yeah. So let's start there. Uh, Climate-wise, like where you're from in this kind of region, uh, this part of Bolivia, what 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 are we looking at in terms of a year-round? Uh, so the temperature in general doesn't change too much. Um, at night, it's I would I would compare it to a desert a little bit because in the night the temperature can go really low. I mean, what, for me is really low. <laughs> uh, well, um, every morning when you wake up, there's frost on it. Okay. So it's cold. It goes like minus two, maximum minus three. Celsius. But during the day, Celsius. Uh, but during the day, you can reach like eighteen. I mean, if it's really high, nineteen mm. uh, degrees so Celsius. Seventies. And yeah. uh, it's a really weird weather because uh, if you stay in the shade, you will freeze. And if you go in the sun, you burn. Oh, so even during the day, you just... Oh, you yeah. get so hot, you'll be sweating. I mean, this is like hot tropical sun. And then you walk behind a building and you're freezing cold. <laughs> my favorite part was walking around town and people are selling ice cream. Yeah. Right? And so instead of having a, a freezer where they scoop the ice cream out, they have all these cones pre-scooped sitting out and they're just standing behind a building and there's no melt whatsoever and they'll stand out there all day wow so you want an ice cream you go over and say oh i, I want that one and mm-hmm. you take your ice cream and then you go stand in the sun and start licking it because it's melting <laughs> yeah that's pretty remarkable so you have almost no atmospheric insulation and in a 24-hour period you can go from a nice 70 degree fahrenheit day to below, below freezing, freezing. Right. uh that is going to do remarkable things to the flora of a largely tropical country. Yeah. But despite that huge diurnal difference in temperature, summer to winter is a few degrees difference. Okay. Yeah. So you're and not, I, the tilt isn't. Yes. Yeah. And it's more like it's in rainfall. Consistent. So normally like December, January, February are going to be the rainfall months, even though the past couple of years haven't been the situation. That's why right. we had a two month drought in La Paz. <laughs> Oof. Uh, but uh, those are the rainy months and then the rest of the year is pretty dry. Wow. Okay. That's weird. Uh, I can't imagine without you know, the aid of the photographs you took what it must look like up there. So from like a nice broad brush stroke, if you were walking, if someone just put you down in La Paz overnight and you didn't realize it, what, what would you look out on? I mean, you're looking out on a desert-like ecosystem or is it more Mediterranean looking? Mm, it, it reminded me of the U.S. Southwest a lot. So if you think of a, uh, a large valley way up in the mountains... 
and you've got all of the sort of uh, exposed rock and clay where that you see are wind and, and rain swept without a lot of vegetation, just sort of scrubby and cactus. And the city sort of goes up that valley. And then at the top of the valley, it's the Altiplano. So it's the high plain and it just turns into this incredibly flat, endless plain. Weird. And this is sort of the, the flat plain that's in the middle of the Andes. Okay. And so, so once you look out from there, then you can see these huge mountaintops that are covered in glaciers. <laughs> that's so bizarre. Yeah. So it's, it's desert-ish, but... High desert. High desert. Um, you know, are there the typical cacti? I mean, cactaceae is... Oh, there's a lot of cactaceae. World. There's the small clumping kinds. There's tall columnar ones. None really huge. Well, no, there were a couple depends, of serious types. Depends that were where. There yeah. are some... A little further, further lower elevation. Yes, you can find bigger cactaceae. Yeah. Hmm. But as you go on up, up in elevation, the stature of the plants gets smaller and smaller. Right. So you're getting into these weird dwarf habitats right. almost. And this is something that you can do in a walk in some hours. You can go from, you know, trees like eucalyptus trees and cypress trees in the lower part of the city. And then you can walk up a hill and then you're beyond the level of vegetation that goes above your waist. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. So now you are from the capital. Do you live? Did you grow up in the city? I grew up there. Okay. Uh, you know, now that you are more plant oriented botanically, uh, thinking about what's around, like what was your neighborhood like floristically i mean is this something you noticed as a kid or is it something you've come to appreciate over the years so i can tell that now that i am more plant oriented i have actually remarked that there is actually plants here <laughs> like growing naturally because yeah. otherwise i mean we have a lot of bushy asteraceae at least where i live uh, and I think those are the only ones that I really noticed, you know, besides some of the invasive grass, you know. Mm. Uh, but now that, like, I kind of, like, developed my eye a little better, I see a lot of little things. Uh, like, uh, we saw a huge bromeliad uh, oh, in one mountain. Oh, lots of bromeliads, the and stuff. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. There was a puya, uh, lots of asteraceae, of course. Yeah. Um, some shrubs. Mm -hmm. So you keep saying shrubs for groups of plants that I don't think about as shrubby. Is that something that is kind of unique to the Andean highland areas? Or is it just something regionally that tended to happen with the flora, like Asteraceae, Lamiaceae being woody? Well, it's just foreign to me as a, a temperate North American boy. I would, I would, I don't know, I would assimilate that morphological shape to maybe the weather mm. it's like a form of protection right? i would agree they cannot grow like really large as really large trees because the wind is so so bad like they yeah. would be blown away um but herbaceous you... plants they would desiccate super fast yeah and if you uh, think of mediterranean climates uh the american west places like that where it's pretty dry and windy you have a lot of shrubs right you know you think of um uh, sage scrub habitat yeah. and things like that it's just it's convergent hardy yeah. Sort of low leaf surface area. Stay small, small leaves, very coriaceous sometimes, or cuticles. Very waxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, storage in the stems more so than the leaves themselves. Because yeah. mm -hmm. get up too high in the, like you said, you either desiccate or the wind blows you away. Yes. Wow. Um, so what, uh, in terms of, you said some invasive grasses, that's obviously invasive plants follow human settlements. I'm sure La Paz is no different. Mm -hmm. uh, dealing with the kinds of, I just, it's weird to think of invasive things at that high elevation, but I'm sure they're there. I'm sure they're there. Eucalyptus. 
Well, but the eucalyptus is uh, human planted, right? Because uh, we had a lot of because it's a valley, there were a lot of problems of erosion with the you know urbanization, mm-hmm. and so people seem to believe that planting eucalyptus is going to be good for sustaining the terrain, and that's why they planted so many. So. But they are were also spreading themselves around a lot. Probably. Yeah, eucalyptus tends to do pretty well in those types of mm-hmm. habitats. Yeah. So let's let's get serious about the botanical adventure you guys just went on. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> let's summarize it in a very small amount of time, right? That's no small task. I mean, what did you guys start? What were you hoping to see? Did you go with any expectations or was this kind of a, a wing in it? Let's see what we see. I mean, you're yeah. obviously visiting her homeland. Kind right. Of getting so to know. we went for a month. We went for uh, basically the month of July last year. And uh, yeah, we, it was more, oh, let's visit the family. But then I was also, I've never been to Bolivia. The farthest south I've been was Panama, you know, mm-hmm. I Let's see what's down there. Cool. And uh, it was it was dry like I thought. You know, the La Paz is almost at the height of uh, the top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. So mm. snow, it's freezing cold. You got all those little <laughs> plants. But I found it strange in the city. You know, there were lots of trees and things, and people were still growing fruits. You had passion fruits in town, just mm. like all the rest of Latin America. It was the different species, mm-hmm. but... Still, it was a passion fruit. And edible. Yep. Wow. And uh, citrus and things. There are. So the thing is that one part of La Paz is really highlands and probably over 60% of the actual department of La Paz is tropical Andes. Okay. So like if you drive like one hour towards Coroico, you're just gonna, you're gonna find uh, pretty tropical, humid, warm yeah. weather where you can... It doesn't take long easily. to go down the hill and right. hit yeah. what you normally think of as tropics. Hmm. <laughs> so where did you guys start your adventure? Uh, we flew into La Paz and we started out there. Yeah. And then uh, what's the first thing we did? Um, uh, we, checked we went out, to Tiwanaku? Te- well, we checked out the botanical garden at Miraflores. Which is a really cool botanical garden up in there. Okay. Um, they had a lot of foreign plants, but it was it was uh, landscaped really nicely, and they had some really old trees in there. But then they had did have a good focus on the native cactus flora, especially, okay. mm-hmm. and uh, some of the other plants. You know, they had a, a small tropical greenhouse too. Yeah, small tropical greenhouse where a lot of stuff collected from the lowlands huh. to to show the people in the highlands. Yeah, and it was funny to think about. People who had lived in Bolivia all their life, but then had never seen some of these tropical, what we think of as tropical plants. Oh, so some insula, some communities in the mountains can be pretty insular in terms of oh, sure. growing and, up and there. And it's hard and, to move around the country. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big country. So. It's a big yeah. country and the roads are not very good. Yeah. <laughs> had you been out of the, I had, the highlands? I had a few times uh, to Santa Cruz, a department more in the south, but... Um, I really, I mean, I really discovered, I think, tropical flora, like... When I was doing my master's. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Getting up into Central America yes. and doing all the epiphyte things. Right. I didn't know. And like everybody at school was like, oh, but you should know all these plants. You come from a tropical country. And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> Where I live is dry. You're a mountain woman. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some highlights of that first initial foray? I mean, what kind of, you, obviously the cacti were there, but what kind of genera, what species... Uh, there were a lot of fuchsias, fuchsias really? that I really liked. Okay. Before we even get into the species, I, I recently found out that because fuchsia is from a name, it's actually fu- fuchsia, not fuchsia. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Anyway. Saying fuchsia is just it's an old habit. It's a color. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
yeah, what's what was are these like roadside? Was it good roadside veg? Did you have to kind of venture out to get to see? Uh, I mean, it's such a, a foreign climate mm-hmm. that there was interesting things everywhere. Yeah. Roadside weeds. I mean, I found lupins growing that looked, lupins. they made me think immediately. I was like, oh, it's a lupin. But yeah. wow, that's a strange looking lupin. Like the palmate leaves. Palmate leaves. And it had the, the little purple flower spike. It even had a caterpillar on it. And ah. I think of lupins being great butterfly plants. Yeah. And sure enough, down in South America, they are too. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, are, are, are fuchsias native down there? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. There's a lot of native ones. They're sort of a high elevation species, but even some of the, the cultivars, people would have planted it in their yard and then suddenly had this giant bush scrambling on the side of a house. Wow. Yeah, I never think about it that way because, I mean, at least here in North America, the introduction you have to fuchsia are just the little hanging plants. Exactly. But they... They do come from somewhere, and mm-hmm. obviously there's more than just the handful that have made it into the trade. Are they woody? I mean, is this a woody plant or herbaceous, sprawling? I would say the majority of them are somewhat woody. Mm-hmm. Shrubs, subshrubs. Um, some of them can get quite tall, like paniculata and microphylla are, you know, I mean, it would be a bush well over my head. Cool. So 10 feet tall or something. Yeah, you're not short. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but uh, your parents' neighbors had what I would have looked at and said, oh, that's a fuchsia cultivar hybrid. You know, that, I would see that in a hanging basket back home. And it was this giant bush sprawling over their, awesome. over their fence. It's like poinsettias when you see them growing out of a pot or, you know, away from Christmas. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a shrub. Uh, Brugmansias, too. Yeah. There are Brugmansias all over the place and a couple different varieties. Yeah, I noticed that a lot in Panama is they seem to line all the farms. Uh, is that, obviously they're native to Central and South America, but are South they America. are they kind of weedy? They just planted there? Would, would they just get they're, in there and They're easy well? to propagate. You can cut off a branch, stick it in the ground, and it'll root and grow. And huh. people like them because the flowers are just so pretty. Yeah. So it's a, any plant that is pretty that you can actually grow at that elevation with that weather is welcome. People just grab onto Especially that. Especially if it get, if you can get it to flower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pelargoniums are really popular. Really? And bougainvillas were really Bougain- popular. Geraniums. Down, yeah, geraniums, pelargoniums mm-hmm. were yeah. super popular. Everybody had them. Yeah. And they probably go gangbusters. They're if huge left alone. bushes. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and there are quite a few different varieties of them too. Mm-hmm. All from kind of freely flowering whenever they feel like it. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's got to be such a strange experience, at least from my perspective, is to just always see stuff in pots and then go out. It's like seeing it, even if it's not supposed to be there, just escaped and misbehaving itself. That's pretty interesting. Oh, one of my personal favorite plants was the cantuta. And now... <laughs> There's a bit of a debate about this one earlier, if you can sense some comedy in the room. So, what is a cantuta? Amor. To me, like a Bolivian person, a cantuta is, I'm not talking about the genus, just like a tubular flower that has green, yellow, and red colors. To match the Bolivian flag. To match the Bolivian flag. Okay. But like I'm learning now, it seems that that's not the genus cantuta and that the real cantuta genus is fuchsia. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's a I Polymoniaceae mean, cantua. And it looks kind of like a fuchsia, maybe like a miniature brugmansia. It's sort of a pendant uh, magenta flower with a long corolla. Okay. And these are planted all around La Paz. You know, they're beautiful, extremely floriferous. Oh, wow. Um, and 
I mean, they're planted downtown in the central square. They're planted all around. And that is what I interpreted as being the cantuta. That's what our guide told us was a cantuta. And when we looked it up on the internet, that's a cantuta. But not everybody agrees that that's the cantuta. I'm really curious about the shape of this sh this plant. Is that a shrub that just has these pendulous inflorescences? Yeah. So I would say that this is, uh, it grows sort of like a bougainvillea where it's sort okay. of a... It's a shrub, but at the same time, it's sort of viney. You'll get a long, unbranched stem that comes out, and there'll be a few small branches that flower on the end of it, and then it sort of sprawls. We'll call that lazy shrubs. Yeah. Nice. And obviously, a lot of these are hummingbird pollinated that you're showing me, these long tubular corollas. Long. So many hummingbirds up there. Yeah. Many different kinds. Spectacular ones. There was the, what was it, some kind of a comet? That had this long tail, and there was red on oh, it. Oh, I remember. That one. And we saw the giant Andean hummingbird. That's so cool. Coming to a tubular asteraceae with a large orange flower. It's just bizarre. What you just said is so strange. I mean, just from the fact that, A, there's hummingbirds at elevation where it's pretty cold at times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, their metabolisms aren't known for long-term <laughs> heat generation. But just... All of the weird things that have then adapted to them, like I don't think Asteraceae when I think hummingbird pollinated plants, but weird. Yeah, you know, the Asteraceae diversity up at this elevation is really high, and most of them are the open yellow flowers that are typical yeah. for bee pollinated or whatnot. Yeah. But there's some of them have adapted to the hummingbirds because they make it up there. You know, hummingbirds go into a torpor at night, and so they sort of mm. hibernate every night. Just to save. And that, that's how they get through, because otherwise they need to eat every couple hours and they yeah. just die. Or they just be burning off all that energy to... Right. Jeez. So was a lot of stuff actually adapted to hummingbird pollination up there, though? I mean, just overall, it seems like a lot of... Yeah, there was that salvia with the huge pink flowers, those asteraceas, the Bergmansias, cantutas, all those. Yeah, for sure. Wind pollinated, too. Plenty of wind up there, I'm sure. Yes. Whipping across the high plain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially in the Altiplum. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Now, a lot of stuff you've been showing me pictures of, at least, and I apologize that this is more of an audio, uh, audio medium, but uh, everything looks fuzzy, kind of hairy, kind of fuzzy, tomentose. Uh, you know, there's some hundreds mm -hmm. of different ways of saying it, but is that generally an adaptation to high elevation habitats? Oh, absolutely, them? yeah. So the... The silvery hairs will form, uh, will serve a few functions. You know, they'll reflect the sunlight. They sort of act as insulation. Uh, they'll cut down on the wind. The mm. loss of uh, water through transpiration when it's windy. All encompassing, just great. Sure. So you know, you, you see some of the cacti are all covered in hairs. Um, a lot of the shrubs, the leaves yeah. will be very, very tomentose and silvery. And also resist the frost because mm. it freezes almost every night. And the, the intense UV also at that elevation, you know, the atmosphere is so thin that UV yeah. blasts. It is remarkable to think about because we think of plants just desperately wanting as much light as they can get, but it's almost too much. Yes. You know, there is such thing as too much light and a lot of damaging uh, rays can do terrible things to genomes. Even some of the ferns were fuzzy wow. and silver. Okay, so I see an adiantium here, uh, and then there's three species of fern in this one picture. Right, and this is in a high elevation desert. Wow. So that picture was taken uh, in what I would consider sort of a wash, right? The, the water had eroded part of a hillside, and there was a little crack, and it just stayed kind of shady and cool. Mm. And so there was a great fern diversity. 
that's bizarre. And that's like a kind of like a cliff break asplenium, and then one of those weird kind of crusty looking ferns that I, yeah, I so see out in California. Yeah, so there's a Chylanthes in there. Chylanthes. That's this one. That was the really fuzzy one, and then the the silver one is Pilea turnifolia. Pilea, okay. Pilea. Pilea, and it has that. Um, I'm guessing if you looked underneath those kind of. Refl- like undercurved edges. Yeah, it's a little territe, I would say. Territe. Territe. So when the leaf kind of folds over on itself. Yeah. Such a cool picture. I'm gonna have to have you send me like the top ten best to share with this. I this only episode. get to choose ten. Wow. All right. <laughs> All right. So what is that? What so, do we have here? Uh, some kind of an orchid. I didn't oh. get identified. Okay. So they're even way up there. Orchid diversity at high it's elevation. Is that where mo- obviously most of them have to be terrestrial? There's not a lot of epiphytic life. No. Well, there's actually a lot a of epiphytic. Dilantias, a lot in the cables. Okay. The electricity cables. Oh, tons oh of them. so it's like Florida when you go to see the recurvata. It's just every available space. Yeah. Yep. Some of the trees were just completely coated in this thing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Wow. Is there a lot of different Dilantias? Mm-hmm. Like species wise? There weren't too many. I think we saw maybe three or four species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, obviously, you're a bromeliad person by heart, but uh, is there, you know, you mentioned Puya, you mentioned Tillandsia. Is there other, like, even just the terrestrial Native types? Ones. Native There were some Dickias and Hectias, but there they were, were Dickias. And they were less less common than the Puyas, though. And Dickias are the super spiny ones, right? Yes. So, well, the Puyas are just as also bad. If you fell into one of those, you probably wouldn't be getting out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Stitches and surgeries needed yeah. after that. Yeah. I love Puya because I finally got to see them when I went to San Francisco. They were blooming, and it's just huge, first and foremost. But then they have those awesome little perches for the birds that they make underneath each one of their flowers so that the bird can sit there and stick its (laughs) beak down in. And they look like they're all just covered in silver fur. Mm Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Well, they grow on the side of a cliff. they got to conserve as much water as possible. I mean, it's hard enough to grow in a desert, but then growing on a cliff in the side of a desert. (laughs) It's just uh, not really conducive to happy-go-lucky. And that's why probably everything gets really spiny, too. Yeah, don't don't eat me. Don't eat me. I can't afford to lose my vegetation. Right. And there were uh, herbivorous animals, like the viscachas. And they oh, can yeah. get to any of the, the spots on the cliffs. Okay, what's a viscacha? A viscacha? Okay, how can I explain this? It's a, For me, it's a combination of a big rabbit and a squirrel. Okay. That's it, pretty good. The tail is like the one of a squirrel. Like, it's long and it kind of like curls. Poofy. Poofy, right? And then but the, the ears and the rest of the morphology is more like a big rabbit. Oh, okay. It's like yeah. a giant chinchilla, I would say. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly they're, they're what I call that. They're pretty large, though. I would say house cat-sized. And that's yeah. is that one of the dominant herbivores in that landscape? Yes, there, yeah. there's a lot of viscachas there. Um, oh, they're so cute. It's yeah. one of the cutest animals and I've ever seen. The interesting part about them... <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the aggravation you got every time we had to stop and take a picture of an agouti in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. No, these <laughs> are way cuter than agoutis. <laughs> and they're so soft and fuzzy, and they've got squinty little eyes, yeah. and... If you Google Viscacha, you'll see ridiculously cute photos, but that's what they look like all the time. Okay. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. I oh, I know. It's, uh, the interesting part is like, um, so it's probably like a defense mechanism against predators. Um, if you try to catch a Viscacha when it's running, because generally when they're running, they unfold their tail. It's going to be long, not okay. curly. They, it's just curly when they're standing. And so 
probably many predators think, oh, I'm just gonna like step on the tail and then I'm gonna catch the vizcacha, but they just remain with the tail. Oh no, they but detach the tail like a lizard. <laughs> yeah, but, but it doesn't grow back like oh, a lizard. Oh, that's that would traumatize me. Its tail fell off. Oh. Yeah. I'm going to do that to a squirrel one day on campus because they are not afraid of bicyclers. So they're just going to run under and I'm going to take a tail off. On I know it's going to happen. <laughs> I feel so bad when it does. Uh, so moving up in elevation, things obviously get smaller. But do you get weird cushion plants? Because when I think of high desert areas, I think strange cushiony. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we went to Tiwanaku, which is a... Uh, an archaeological site. Uh, they, the civilization predated the Incas, but had oh. similar large constructions and uh, similar clothing and things like that. And we saw a bromotiella there, which is this pincushion bromeliad. And like a green mound of prickly it's a bromeliad. Green mat in the middle of sand. Yeah, it's and so strange. Super spiny. When you see wow, it, it, yeah. looks, it looks like moss or like... A, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. exactly what that looks like. Moss or maybe like a little patch of grass in the, in the sand. But you get up close and it's these spiny little bromeliads. Yeah, literally just condensed tiny, bromeliads. condensed. That's wild. You just wonder, how do those get started? You know, it's got to start with one yeah. <laughs> a right? seed. Uh, it must... I, I don't know because around it is just powdery sand, almost dust. Yeah. And you can see the erosion, like the wind erosion around it and everything. But that, that could be an adaptation, though. Yeah. Because, like, you know, they're so aggregated, they kind of carry their, their own microclimate just and microsystem in there. Yeah, absolutely. So but I, I just I don't know how the first one started. Right. So do they, obviously, terrestrial bromeliads root, I would assume, right? They actually have functioning root systems that mm-hmm. are just anchoring them to a tree. They're yeah. in the soil, like... Yeah, I wonder roots. how, I don't know what percentage of their water will come from the roots versus it was absorbed through the leaves. Because a um, lot of the moisture that these will get is just from the morning fog. Yeah, a lot of have oh. a lot of them have trichomes, absorbing trichomes. Yeah. And so those trichomes will, will get activated when there's a little bit of humidity. Or others, what they do is like, um, you know, any of the like little fog that forms is going to like, these trichomes are... So in the tips of the leaves, they're hydrophobic. Okay. So the water is repelled, but that allows also to um, the water or the fog to form small um, droplets. And so they go inside the rosette where the trichomes change and they become hydrophilic. And so the water can get absorbed. And so what you see in a lot of bromelias and even I think in some orchids is that they do have a rooting system that enters them to the floor. Yeah. But many of the roots will go inside the rosette to get the water oh that is so and the detritus that is decomposing there wow so they're they're literally uh condensing and bringing the it's like a constant flow of moisture and then inevitably nutrients like you said but then they grow their roots into like the center ah Yeah, so you can actually see that on some bromeliads. If you peel away the lower leaves like you can actually see the roots have kind of grown up inside so they're negatively geotropic well, they have different roots that will actually anchor okay. them down. Okay, so it's differentiation of the roots. It's yeah. Wow. I suppose so, yeah. That's so strange. That's awesome. Now, were you showing me a Fedra there earlier? Yeah. A yeah. spindly Nitalis? Gnitalis? Yeah. You know, it's just the same thing. Reduced leaves, photosynthetic stem. You want to reduce transpiration in this hot, dry, windy environment. But ephedra is neat because it's one of those weird gymnosperms that isn't a conifer. You know, everyone thinks of conifers and they think gymnosperms, but we were just 
going crazy looking at Needham today, a Needham vine. And... I mean, the fruits look like little orange berries, but yeah. I mean, I guess it's technically a cone or a strobilis. Or even an arrow, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just having this discussion the other day. The big difference is that fruit develop from ovary walls that the gymnosperms don't have, so it's always a scale or something that has mm-hmm. differentiated okay. into a fruit-like structure hmm. that you can't technically call a fruit. Right. It's always difficult to talk around that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just like I kept saying inflorescence when I was talking it's about like, no, Needham. No. <laughs> not quite, not quite. All right, what else did you see up there? Hmm. Well, we went to Lake Titicaca, which is sort of uh, split between Peru and Bolivia. And it's the highest navigable lake in the world. So it's a large, very large, deep lake. You can see it's it's got an irregular coastline, so mm-hmm. you can see to the other side, but you can't see the entire lake unless you fly very high above it. And even so it's then, it's enormous. Big. It's a big lake with large boats on it. And frogs. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, there's bizarre frogs. There's a bunch of endemic flightless birds that live on the <laughs> lake. And yet, when you look around the lake... You know, there's very little vegetation. There's a, a reed, sort of a grass, okay. that grows around. Typha, something. Uh, yeah, made some typha or something like that that will grow on the immediate lake shore. But then, once you get up into even just up, just above the lake shore, it turns into high desert. Yeah. You know, there's a little grass and some shrubs. Wow, that's crazy. I but underwater know. was totally vegetated. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The under, under the aquatic plants were amazing in the lake. Do you have any idea what they were? No. I don't, I don't. <laughs> that's I'm noticing that's a completely different specialty than uh, most botanists or people that are good with aquatic vegetation. Yeah. It's, it's so much harder to study. Well, and Bolivia doesn't have a flora yet. They really the Missouri Botanical Garden has put out uh, the annotated checklist of Bolivia. Okay. But they haven't put out the flora yet. Stefania, what are you doing here? Go make a flora for your country. <laughs> You've got another 80 years of yes, life ahead of can, you, right? I yeah. can become a taxonomist now. <laughs> would you guys get along as well if you were a taxonomist? Oh, I'm sure it would so. be fun. <laughs> as long as you didn't try to put your name on a family that shouldn't exist. Uh, so did you see... Uh, you mentioned there were passifloras up there, but... Uh, you know, most people think of these slender vines with the very typical passiflora type inflorescence. Were there any of those weird ones up there with the strange, you know, tubular flowers or the fused corolla? I just think of high elevation being breeding some really strange passifloras. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, we found we found tumbos. Yeah. Passiflora melissima. Would you call it? Tumbo. It's a fruit that we that actually a lot of people in Bolivia have. Oh. And it grows pretty well. It's a passiflorace, and you make juice out of it. Mm. And that's that's the one we were looking at that had the the large corolla flowers, um, large pink. Flowers almost um, like a bit. It, it reminded me of bignoniaceae, or almost even like a brookmansia or something. Yeah. The way it hangs, and then you have sort of the bell flower. Pendulous. Yeah. Again, hummingbirds. hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah, Andean hummingbird. Yeah. And the vine itself was very hairy and. Yeah. yeah, so it is a vine. It's not like a, oh, like yeah, a woody it's a, it's a tree. Vine. Type. Wow, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, the high elevation was amazing. Are the legumes doing weird things up there too? Oh sure, it's the same pattern though. You know, reduced leaves, tough leaves, small shrubs. Yeah, it's I, I've I've come across this concept in ecology of 
strong versus soft environmental filters and mm-hmm. the idea that you know in more benign easier environments you can have a lot more variety in shape and form and function but in very harsh environments what you're describing here it's a very strong filter so only a certain type of form can come to that party kind of situation right. like that there's only a couple ways to make it so you either turn into a little ball like a cactus <laughs> or well basically the shrubs are little balls too you know, yeah it's yeah. just the wind can pass through them. dense <laughs> ball of multiple shrubs yeah. so we had been there for a while and then we decided well we're in bolivia we gotta go to the amazon <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> gotta go down to the lowlands and this is the first time you've really explored the lowlands in bolivia it's the first time I've really gotten inside the forest within a trail in Bolivia. That's awesome. Yeah. Was this a big moment for you then as a Bolivian? Oh, yeah, I was super excited. Oh, we visited. <laughs> well, Madidi National Park is like one of the biggest national parks we have there. Cool. Um, and it's really important because it has like this really steep altitudinal gradient where you go from like, you know, it's ice and cold and then you go down up until the Amazon. So we didn't go as down as the lowlands. Um still some elevation i don't remember exactly how I feel like much but your was, sinuses would explode going from high elevation to the low in traffic it was such an amazing experience so we we get on this little tiny propeller plane in la paz and the plane takes off eventually after six hours of delays huh. <laughs> and it's had to spiral up several times spiraling up and spiraling up because it needed the altitude in order to get over the andean mountains that's a big obstacle. Right? As you go through them. And so... Wow. Uh, we spiraled up, and then you go over these mountains that are completely covered in ice and snow with, like, these, you know, green glacial lakes. In the tropics, in the mind tropics, you. In the tropics. And so then you, you come up over the top, and then it just drops away to... I mean, it's... Just jungle. Just, yeah, it's Amazon rainforest all of a sudden once you get down there. There's there's sort of a, a brief period where you're coming down over the snow, and there's some valleys, but there's not really too many peaks or foothills. Mm-hmm. It just sort of the mount, the foot of the mountain just sort of spreads out, and then it flattens out, and then it's just flat Amazon as far as you can see. And and is this? I, I'm gonna claim serious ignorance here, but I mean, is is Bolivia's Amazon facing the same logging and mining pressures that say Brazilian Amazon is facing, or is there large tracts of relatively primary pristine forest? Not with the intensity that Brazil is, okay. because we have other types of forests that are being very damaged as well. But there is a lot of logging. I mean, especially near the frontier with Brazil. Yeah. Uh, in the department of uh, Pando, uh, there is a lot of. Illegal logging, a lot of cattle ranching, that mm. is, you know, I mean, of course, of deforestation. And even within the national park, because this national park is huge. Yeah. You cannot control um, who goes in and who goes out, and so there's a lot of logging there as well. Right. So, I have to admit, though, as we were flying over this for maybe 30 minutes, we didn't see any roads. And there were just a few settlements on the rivers, yeah. a, a collection of huts with some bananas around it, and that was the village. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, it is facing terrible deforestation and problems, but there is a lot left. Yeah. Like, it was gorgeous. A lot worth caring about, a lot worth going yes. Yeah, it was preserving. It was a real treasure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely, treasure. like, rather than doing restoration, Bolivia's priority should definitely be conserving what we have left. Because compared to some other countries yeah. in Latin America, we still have a huge surface right. of forests that we can conserve. Yeah. Um, so once we got down there to Rurinavake, we we hopped on a boat. 
And they took us up the river on the boat. We were like in the boat. Three, wow. Three, three and a half hours. Three and a half hours going up yeah. the river into the Amazon forest. It was a little bit scary because it was like this wooden like boat. <laughs> it was like, is this safe? This doesn't look safe. The river, it was the dry season because oh that's God. when you can walk in the forest where it's not flooded. Right. Okay. But the river was low and there's a lot of rocks in the river. Wow. And so he was very afraid that, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's our guides, our yeah, guides were fantastic. My they, legit fear of. Yeah, they were, they were fantastic. They got us up to the little camp. And so it was just some tiny little cabins in the woods, little clearing. <laughs> and, uh, and we had our own personal guide, mm-hmm. indigenous guide. And he took us around, and we just looked at plants and wow. some cool birds, and it was I mean, amazing. As people who have spent time working in the tropics in jungles, um, did it stand out, or was it initially just so overwhelming? You're like, well, green things everywhere. For me, oh. it was like that. Yeah. It was I, I couldn't recognize any of the plants that I've seen before. Yeah, it was it was new and. I don't think I have ever, I mean, it's not like I've been in a lot of tropical forests, but the ones that I've been to, I have not seen such a tall canopy as I have there. And that was, I mean, at least from what the guy told us, um, relatively locked. Wow. So that was kind of regenerated, the section that we were in. But yeah, still, it, it was emergent. It was incredible. We, we came up, and this was floodplain forest on a tributary of the Amazon, and... I recognized some things, you know, certainly plant groups. And yeah. There were palms and aeroids and things. And uh, even Phytonia, Phytonia albivanus, the little um, little potted plant or terrarium plant with the pink veins oh, yeah, sort of, or yeah. white veins. Yeah, this was just growing on the forest floor there. Huh. Um, there were some marantas I saw that were, I looked like it came from a potted plant, but they were just growing throughout the forest. But this was at the foot of the largest trees I've seen outside of sequoias. I mean, really, ginormous trees. I mean, that's not a small buttresses. claim to make, considering the size of those monsters. No. Right. So I mean, wow, giant trees with these huge sprawling buttresses. We even saw a mahogany tree. We saw mahogany. Really, it's true mahogany. mahogany. So this was a real mahogany tree, bright red, bright red inner wood, and it had been damaged in a windstorm. And so we walk up, and there's this branch towering over my head. And this was a branch that had fallen off of the tree. <laughs> yeah, right? So... I mean, the tree must have been 20 feet across or something. Oh, wow. It's enormous. Yeah. Enormous trees. And so... to think of the size of that added to all of the other plants living on it. I mean, one tree has probably more diversity on its limbs than, you know, a park here in Missouri. Yes, but this area was drier than I had expected. This is the Amazon rainforest. However, it has a really strong dry season. So mm. it's not like everything was draped in moss and miniature orchids. Okay. There were a lot of epiphytic cacti and a lot of um, uh, orchids that had large pseudobulbs and coriaceous leaves up in the canopy. So things that are kind of pre-adapted mm-hmm. to this harsher sort of tropical... A little bit harsher. Yeah. And definitely not as warm as, you know, forests that we've been in, like, Panama well, we did. We hit there during a, a sewer, which yeah, is sort of a bizarre. Yeah, it gets like that often. Yeah, it's, whenever it's there the is time. a sewer, it gets pretty chilly. What is a sewer? Sewer is. It means south. This wind that comes from. Um, I'm not sure if it's Patagonia, but I'm yes. sure it comes from Argentina. Okay, so colder parts of South America. Yes, mm-hmm. and it and it affects all that that region of Santa Cruz and. 
Well, it's like really moist and really cold. Oh, so it's kind of like your weird version of a polar vortex. <laughs> I was just going to say that, except that one comes from the Antarctic. Yeah, well, <laughs> even worse. <laughs> oh, wow. So floodplain forests, I mean, when I see floodplain forests, floodplain forests around here, it, they're, the, the understory is kind of sparse. I mean, is that similar? Or is it a flood that generally doesn't come ripping through for a couple of days out of the year? There's a season where it's underwater. Yeah, so this is not sort of like um, the Mississippi floodplain forests that I've seen, where there's very little vegetation. Uh, there were shrubs and things here. This was more like it seems to flood and then ebb down. Mm. And you know there will be large pools and puddles remaining and things like that. So, so yeah, there was, there was undergrowth. But we were able to walk through it. Fine. But yes, I mean, it I'm was glad easy we had the guide walk. because we. But I, I would, I would just, yeah. I would assimilate that more to the maturity of the forest. Right, just but, how long it's been since it was last yeah. logged. Right, and it had a, a, an emergent layer and a canopy layer and a subcanopy and then the ground layer. Hmm. Very well defined. Awesome. Okay, so you venture off into the Amazonian forest. Mm-hmm. What were you seeing? <laughs> There's a lot of acai. Really? A lot of acai, yeah. yes. Yeah, native acai palms growing huh. wild. So the superfood that we get in all our yuppie stores up yeah. here is just yeah. hanging out, being a palm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Bolivia, we usually do juice a bit, but just because... It's there. It's, why not? And it's citrusy, and it's like a refreshing when it's really yeah. hot, So That was kind of like uh, I went through a period of time where I was working at a health food store, and they got real excited about um, aronia berries, and they kept. Someone even said it's like this mystical jungle fruit, and I was like, I can take you to a wetland right now <laughs> and get you some of these tart, nasty little berries. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, let's see, what else did we get? Uh, the vine. I, I remember the, the name. The uña de gato. Yes. The cat claw. Cat claw vine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a this is a new kind of health craze that people are doing. It's supposed to help a lot with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Well, uh, it's new here, but in yeah, Bolivia, people it's who been have using Lyme right. disease. Oh, and, where you get those joint pains. Yeah, a lot of joint pain. Huh. And what kind of vine is it? Uh, it's a pretty viciously thorny oh, vine. Hence That's why they call it cat claw. Right. What family is that? Oof. That I don't know. Off the top of my head. Come on, you guys. The, you know, the vines there are so tall because they're in the tops of the trees. Right. What so do you actually like get I, to see? I didn't actually see a leaf or anything. I, there was point. just this thorny rope going That's up. That's a very good trees. point. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's probably a smilax, but it, it, I have it looks no like idea. one, yeah. but I, I don't know that it is. As someone who's had their. Uh... Oh, okay. We've got a, our, our producer over here says it's uh, Rubiaceae. Oh, okay. Uncaria. Uncaria tomentosa. Hmm. Rubiaceae. How about wow. that? A coffee vine that wants to scratch you. It's weird. Instead of, instead of cat Rubiaceae. scratch fever, do you think it's like cat scratch <laughs> and you just get like the coffee buzz going? No. Yeah, and uh, we were told that you know, if you get lost in the rainforest, that's the vine you want to find. Because if you cut a segment of the vine, it will, uh, it will drip the cleanest water that you can get in the rainforest. Good to know. The more you know. And... There was a significant amount of water that we were drinking from, like, a little piece that was, like, I don't know, like, 40 centimeters long. Yeah, so there was this one sort of uh, thick stub that the guide was sort of maintaining yeah. for visitors. And so he would just cut off a small section, and it would just drip, 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 and you'd take drips, and then, you know, <laughs> pass it around, and it would just keep going and keep going. And it was just 
It's a small segment that he would cut out. That's wild. I've seen similar things uh, for a short period of time with grapevines. Mm-hmm. You can cut them, and it's almost, if you get a nice diameter vine, it's like a faucet. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, it really was. And, and it's cool because, yeah, you think you're, especially in the tropics, you're sitting around, there's the water that's standing you don't want to drink. Yeah, there's absolutely, plenty yeah. of stuff living in it, so... You know, why not let nature's filter, (laughs) plant vascular systems do it for you? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Is that a walking palm? Uh, Yeah. Nice. Yep. And, you know, they're well adapted. It's almost like buttresses for them. Yeah. So they can stand in those kind of shifting waters. We were at uh, the Garfield Conservatory, and, you know, I forget that palms followed a very different evolutionary lineage when it comes to tree formation, but. There was some of the palms that they had in the garden there. I don't know what they were, but if you looked at the base, it almost looked like someone had dug the dirt away from the trunk, and then there was tiny prop roots there, but it's just the walking palms are an extreme version of that. Yeah. That can then root when they get knocked over, or they need to go find a new... They're literally slowly walking through the forest in search of these sun patches or favorable habitats. Or Well, and, you know, also, these palms, a lot of trees don't like to have their... The, the base of the tree buried in sediment. Mm. And so if you're in a floodplain forest, these roots keep that growing point up. And as the new roots come down from higher on the trunk, they just root into whatever level the sediment's at. Okay. So different flood events can bring in different levels of mm-hmm. sedimentation. I mean, ferns, you're a big fern aficionado at times. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I think of warm, humid understories as fern heaven, where there's some cool ones. I feel like there were not too many ferns down there. Ferns. And I th- I wonder if that has to do with the, the dry season. Just really oh, takes a hit. Be, yeah. yeah. We actually saw more fern diversity up in the highlands where <laughs> it's cold and dry, but, you know, there's fog and things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> condensation. Weird. Mm-hmm. Weird limitations you don't expect to happen or have to concern yourself with, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of the highlights of that? I mean, the big trees are huge, but... Yeah, so the big trees were the coolest part for me. I mean, they were enormous and pretty plentiful. You know, you could tell where they had sort of been logged out in some areas because there would be large gaps, and then you'd come into an area where there were a bunch of large trees. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, I don't know, when the jaguar, when we found the jaguar prints... That oh, we found some jaguar right, prints when we were wow. walking towards Right next to the camp. Yeah. That we we walked probably in. weren't there when you got there. No, we, we walked into the camp, and there was nothing. And then on our way, we came back out, and the guy was like, oh, look at that. And we're like, hey, wait, are those big cat prints? And it had just walked by in maybe 15 minutes that we yeah. took to wow. pass back and forth. I mean, that's a great sign if you're still in, like, a secondary growth forest and there's jaguars hanging around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Well, he said that... Uh, up until, what was it, 20 years ago, they had been extirpated by the loggers and the hunters. Really? And they'd been extirpated for, you know, maybe a generation. Well, but, they're still being extirpated. Yes, but he said they had come back to this area after having been totally hunted out. Because Which is, it's now park and it's maintained as park. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, the cats come back. If you build it or let it go, they will come. Yeah. 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 The only worry now is that it could all be flooded. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because, um, well, our government wants to build a water reservoir uh, in the river that is, you know, near the forest. And so that's going to flood a substantial part area of the forest. forest. 
Ugh. And also, in, which includes a lot of indigenous territories. Wow. That are going to be displaced. That's awful. But and this is for a water project, a hydroelectric project? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Um, I think it's mostly a hydro project. We think that we can sell energy to other countries, but I mean, our, our competitivity in the market is... I mean, we're not even going to be able to, like, recover any money we spend on that reservoir selling any energy we produce with it. Is there a name for this project in case people want to look it up and get yes, involved in the, the fight? Yes, it's the project of uh, Represa del Bala. Okay. And um, I, I can give you a link yeah. for our webpage. Yeah, mm-hmm. that'd be good to kind of... Yeah, yeah, and that would be good to, like, get it spreaded because there's a lot of um, indigenous communities that are complaining a lot, but they're not being listened to, and a lot of their territories are being affected. And these are people that live, you know, in the forest, but there's like years and years of like traditional knowledge and they do not disturb it or they have a way of using it Yeah. from which we could learn um, that we would potentially be destroying. Putting under completely meters and meters of water. Yep. Disgusting. Yeah. Well, definitely give us the link to that so that the listeners can venture on and find out more. Mm-hmm. Damn. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, I think it's probably happening in a lot of yeah, parts of the world anyway. The unfortunate so. part of humanity there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good question to ask, I guess, is just in the culture, in Bolivian culture, if you can even sum it up in a few, you know, regional sort of areas. But our plants, is this environmental ethic, is that something that you're taught growing up? Is it something that's ingrained in your culture? Is it something that's largely lost from the more modern parts uh, and restricted to more indigenous communities? It's weird. It's a weird thing because uh, in our constitution and for a lot of people, Mother Earth, which we call Pachamama, is extremely important. And it is celebrated and people do parties about it and everything. But when it comes to really taking care of the environment, when it comes to like not polluting, to respecting some basic, basic like recycling rules, mm-hmm. um, people don't care. Just but can't be bothered. A lot of that comes from people that don't care, and others, you know, like I was talking about logging previously. I think it's a lot, you know, in big part dragged by the ignorance and the poverty in a lot of the population. Right. Um, Poverty, drugs, all those yeah. people that are loving because, you know, they they need to, to live with something. Yeah, I mean, you really can't fault them for taking right. care of themselves and their immediate needs first, but yeah. that's where the kind of government ethic of respecting that and, you know, improving what is needed by those communities instead of, you know, putting them under a reservoir. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oi, well... You're not alone uh, on this planet, like you said, plenty of other countries facing that. Um, In the interest of ending on a high note, (laughs) not to say that this isn't important to talk about, but uh, I don't want to walk away with that. What were, if you guys had to pick like the coolest species or like the coolest natural experience you had on that trip? Um, Stephanie, you can go first. I think for me, it was Madidi National Park. Just seeing it? Seeing it and because it's like so, an environment that is so different from what I've usually seen and well just being there and listening to like the stories that um, the local guides told us mm. just like um, I don't know it really made me want to work there more either for conservation or for restoration because you know first for example I cannot really do my thesis there right now because 
so very little of the species are known mm. that I would have to identify a ton of species that I don't have the flora to identify. Um, you just got to make the flora. That so, should be your thesis. <laughs> <laughs> no small task. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, that was the most exciting part. Cool. And, yeah, it motivated me to like go back eventually at some point when I get some bigger funding and work towards more conservation. Again. Right on. Well, with the techniques you're learning in your restoration ecology uh, specialty, you could probably do some damage in a good way. Good damage. <laughs> Botanical damage. <laughs> awesome. Dave? For me, I mean, it was the other side of the planet. I, it's <laughs> a whole different experience in the culture, the plants. Uh, I think the most interesting thing to me was seeing the stark contrast between the highlands and the lowlands. And there's really very little in between. Yeah. You know, you're either up in that altiplano just below the glaciers... Or you're down in the steamy Amazon with enormous trees. <laughs> so big. I mean, you walk up to it and you can't even, you can't give the tree a hug because your arms don't even start to yeah, go around yeah. the circumference. It's so big. Wow. Um, yeah. That's a whole new set of plants for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, just the pictures that you showed where it's, it's, it, there's elements that are familiar just in shape. And, and like you sure. said, this, this necessity to have to be able to live in those conditions but this idea that it's tropical flora adapting to that and it's these tropical floras that are having those you know forms and functions that i would never dream of possible it's like you know, as they say mountain passes are higher in the tropics mm -hmm. i'll let you guys google that and figure out what that means but you can probably guess mm -hmm. yeah. cool so what's on the horizon uh you're gonna go back anytime soon or just working keeping your heads down and working for a while growing plants here in the americas we definitely are gonna go back busy yeah. Uh, and so for the next time, if we go, we definitely either want to do the carnival and for sure the Salar de Uyuni, which we didn't do this time because we didn't have enough time. <laughs> A month was not enough time. Yeah, yeah. But, and I really want to check out some of the uh, inter-Andean valleys, yeah. sort of that transition zone, as brief as it is, between the Altiplano and the Lowlands. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be such a strange hodgepodge of... Floristic diversity. I can't even imagine. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm going to sneak in your suitcase the next time we go down, I think. <laughs> Get to nerd out with You're you guys welcome. in Bolivia. Yeah, you'll have a place cool. to stay. Awesome. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk. I'm glad we could make this happen. Yeah, thanks for thank having you. us. Man. Awesome. This was fun. Of course. Yeah. Welcome back anytime. Uh, how do you, if you have internet, I mean, you're Dave the Plant Guy on and Instagram Gmail. and Gmail. Yeah. And... Uh, Gmail. Uh, at epi.stef, I yeah. guess. Cool. Epistef. All right. Well, thank you both. <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. I don't know about you, but I think a trip to Bolivia is in the future. I thank them for sitting down with us. It was such a joy to catch up with them in person. You know, be nerdy. Talk about plants all day. They would make excellent guides on any sort of field trip you might want to go on. All right, everyone, thank you for listening, and thank you for your continued support. Patreon.com slash plants, YouTube.com slash plants. Go check those out, and stay tuned. I've got a lot of great interviews coming up. We've got a lot of cool projects in the works. Again, thank you to our supporters over on Patreon for helping make that a possibility. And we've got some announcements in the not-too-distant future, so stay tuned. Best way to do that is to subscribe on every major outlet that we have. Just Google Indefensive Plants. All right, until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone. <laughs>